Welcome to uh, Raw, the 90s rave podcast with me, your host, Tom Latcham, and in the presence of royalty, or rave royalty at the very <laughs> least. Uh, as perhaps the main woman in the 1990s rave scene, she's been called the queen of the jungle, but with a proper career inside and outside the rave scene, there's much, much more to her than just that. She's the one and only DJ Rutt. Hello, DJ Rap. Hello. <laughs> That's not your real name, though, is it? We'll come to that later. We'll come to that later. Um, you've achieved so much in your career, um, including being something of a pop star. You're selling three million records. Um, but it was the rave scene that made you, wasn't it? Uh, how grateful are you to the 90s rave scene for all of your successes? Um, well, first, thanks for that lovely intro. <laughs> I don't know if I can live up to that. But, I'm sure um, you will. Um, I think that... Grateful. Um, it's su such a small word compared to how I really feel about what it's done for me. It uh, basically saved my life. So every single day, and I'm not lying when I say this, there are days where I just think, oh, you know, it's so hot. There are things that are hard, right? But pretty much every day, I think I'm still sort of praying, saying, really? I'm, I'm doing this? I feel very lucky. I don't think this owes you a living. So as far as I'm concerned, every day that I get to do my passion, I get to follow my passion, every day that I get to do this and be involved in music and all the things that music has, it's just a blessing. So yeah, grateful, uh, pretty much like thankful, grateful, blissed out, happy, <laughs> super, super uh, excited to be doing it well, still. I'm sure we're going to come onto this, but I can't let that answer go by without asking you how the rave scene saved your life. Well, um, well, this is going to sound dark, but I, I think I don't think I'd be here if it wasn't for it. I, there's very few things that I think there's very few times in your life where you find something that captures your heart in such a way completely that you are not interested in children, family, anything else. You're that you're obsessed to such a point. Um, if I didn't have this, I would not want to be alive. Really? No, I wouldn't be interested. There is no other job. Do you know what? There is something I've thought about doing, glass blowing. I thought what? that would be fun. <laughs> that's not, I the, thought, that's no, not the answer I, no, I was no, expecting. No, 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 no. I'm actually interested. I watch videos. I'm so boring when I'm not doing this. I will watch videos of how speakers are made, wood is carved, glass is blown, and then I'll share it in the tribe, and the tribe are like, what the F is going on? <laughs> but I love like craft work, so things with your hands, doing stuff. But honestly, I cannot think of anything else that I would want to do because it's so interestingly, interestingly difficult. It's so different every day. There is always something. And I have um, I, the, no tolerance for boredom whatsoever. So I think I, I would have probably... The rave scene probably quite good for you then because it is ve it's very rarely boring. Exactly. And there's so much within the business. And, you know, that's the side I'm p particularly interested in. That That's what really makes me tick. So well, you, I read your excellent book, really enjoyed it. And, and you say, as you, as you mentioned there, you know, the rave scene helps you find your true self. You don't think you'd be here without it after a tough start to life. Do you think that's quite common for a lot of people who love the 90s rave scene and hence why that era is viewed with so much love 
uh, by so many people. What, the the fact that we're all a bunch of misfits a that just bit, need, <laughs> a <little bit. laughs> that need a giant hug and a know how bit. to give one back through music. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, you, you've read my book, Intelligent Woman, so you know that, you know, I, I got into raving very, very young. And I think, uh, you know, it was at a point when I was specifically needing to find my place in the world. And I, I, I needed a lot of love and I needed affection and I felt like I was starved from it. So really... It, it, I, everybody I met at that time was sort of, you know, going through the same thing. We were all discovering our religion and discovering our escapism and then discovering our place in the world. But I think the most important thing was it was a place of acceptance. So for the first time, you'd go to a rave and nobody was hitting on you. It was, people wanted to talk to you. It didn't matter black, white, you know, didn't matter what you were doing. It was just there was a gateway there and suddenly we could all you know, do this thing and be and be part of it. Well, that was in the early days. Do you think the rave scene has retained that? Um, that's a good question. I, I think for the fans it has. I think for the DJs it's not so much. Um, I mean, to be fair, you've all been doing it for like 30-odd years, so it's, it's difficult to, to keep that up for that period of time as a DJ when it is your job, ultimately. You see, I respectfully disagree. That's why I created the tribe and Patreon because I want that community. Mm. I love that. I crave that. I'm not in this to have a nine to five job and treat it just as a business. It is a business. I'm hardcore about it being a business, but if it isn't fun and there isn't a sense of community and there isn't like I'm on the phone all day long to fans. I love it. That I've got friends now, you know, that I that I didn't think I would have relationships with. People that have, have crossed over from from fans that I met to now deep friendships. And, um, you know, the Moondance crew, for example, we all have a WhatsApp chat that's con constantly going, a WhatsApp chat, rather, that's constantly going. And we're always speaking to each other all day. And I think that is really important. So for me, I miss that. I think there isn't enough of that community that there used to be, all of us going to Music House, eating our curry goat, cutting dub plates. Do you know what I mean? Who, what you got, what you got, blah, 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 like a poker game with dubs. And I think that um, that's a huge part of it. However, as a raver, when I was coming back here a couple of years ago and just going to raves when I was making the decision to come back here, you know, I think that community is still very much alive, you okay. know, because the, just you go raving with your mates as a group of you, it's a posse, it's all Well, good. later on we will explore more about the current rave scene, but we've got plenty more to explore between now and then, including how you got into being, uh, being a raver, being a DJ, all those sort of things. Uh, but if you want to get in touch with us at the 90s Rave Podcast, you can email us, hello at the 90s Rave Podcast.co.uk. Or, or hit us up on social media. We're on all the channels. Uh, we're also now on YouTube, fully filmed. Everything's filmed, um, and you, as you can see, in glorious uh, HD. Um, and if you fancy as well, perhaps donating, keeping us going. You know, well, basically, we just need a bit of money for expenses uh, to get the train to places where we interview people like DJ Rap. Uh, you can get in touch with. Uh, you can do that at GoFundMe.com forward slash the '90s Rave Podcast. I always say to people, it's free to watch, but not free to run. Uh, very good. Yeah. <laughs> That's a wish well, I might use that. There you go. Uh, so before we go into uh, more about your career, um, I'd like to just do a quick fire round with you to sort of get to know you a little bit better, if that's okay. So uh, we'll do quick fire, nice and snappy. Full name? Sharissa Severia. Very nice. Actually, that's not true. Oh, what? Yeah, it's, it's, there's a bit of a longer name to that, and it's a bit funny, So, because I'm half Italian, as well as the rest is, but So it's Charissa Romana Panuti Severio. Wow. <laughs> oh, my That's God. a mouthful. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, and no. I don't know if you're going to say... You see, I know it's always rude to ask uh, a woman her age, but I'm a journalist, so I'm allowed. What's your age? 
Are you allowed? You are allowed. You have to. You have to ask everyone their age. Do because you, you put it into the pieces, the articles. Well, I'm actually, I don't care about that stuff. I'm proud of my age because I don't feel it and I don't look it, but I will be 52 on December the 2nd, uh, 7th, December the 7th. And she absolutely does not look it, does she? <laughs> fantastic. Uh, and where did you grow up? I mean, I don't know if you could pinpoint this to one place, to be honest. No, I can't. I mean, I grew up probably by the time I was 12 in 12, well, 10 different countries. My stepfather ran... Uh, hotels. He was a general manager of some pretty big hotels like Raffles and Vidala in Malta and places like that. So we were, it's like being an army brand. Every six months a contract would run out. Uh, I lived in Africa. We lived in Sierra Leone. I lived in Ghana. Um, wow. I lived in Malta. I lived in Greece. I lived in, you know, all different places, Singapore until I was five uh, and loads, loads of things like that. And it, it sounds really, you know, fantastical. And in a way, I'm recreating that by touring and living in hotels again, if you think about it before this COVID stuff happened. But um, it's also quite difficult because as a kid you sort of need more stability and mm. you don't want to be moving school all the time. So it was a bit, it was a bit, you know, there, there's pros and cons. And you're in the UK now, whereabouts? What area do you live now? Well, I'd rather probably just make that a broad thing, but uh, I, I live in Reading. Okay, fine. That's, no, that's all. I wasn't going to say, you're not going to your, give out your address on, uh, on Raw the Right. I mean, we like to get to know people, but that's fine. We don't need your full address. Um, Believe me, I did a thing, a photo where I was doing, uh, you know, I was on a bus. And uh, then I had like loads of fans going, "You're in Reading. We <laughs> well, know that bus route." <laughs> well, there's a, there's a guy called Pete Cannon who's uh, an up and coming pr producer, and I didn't know this until I saw one of his videos, and I was like, "That's my local corner shop." <laughs> so he lived right next to me. So uh, uh, can I ask you? And you, again, you, you don't even need to, need to say this if you don't want to. Your relationship status? Oh, I'm married to music. Married to. You've said that before, haven't you? Uh, and uh, you haven't got any children, I don't think. That's that's correct. Well, it depends if you call my female dog. I, I feel I'm a, a To be a fair, she's quite old. I don't yeah. know. Is that, oh, she is. In dog years. So am I. <laughs> in dog years, she's about 90-odd. Yeah. I, I, the, the things that I like to keep, you know, there, there are certain things that I, you know, whether I'm dating someone or not, I like to keep those things private. Um, but at the same time, when it comes to my dog, I am a fur parent. So, okay, yes, fine. she's my baby. And what's her name? Kima. Uh, and what is your favourite non-rave song and why? Oh, God. Uh, you said snappy answers. This could take a while. I think it's Mr. Mr. Take These Broken Wings because when I left um, in England for the first time and I was, I think I was 16 years old and went to Greece, surround, the, the, the ages are a bit fuzzy, but roughly there, thereabouts, I was, I would say, probably in a lot of pain from the things that I was going through at home. And there's a place in Greece that you can go to for like two days and basically take a boat, stay there, and they'll pick you up after two days. And it's, it's just basically catch your own lobster, food, and you just think. And I had my Walkman and I would go there a lot. And that song would be on repeat. And it was just a time of sort of, I think, healing for me. Okay. So I would listen to that song over and over and I'd just be looking at the sky on a beach. The big question, obviously, over the 90s Ray podcast is, do you like the happy hardcore version of it? <laughs> I can't remember it's by. I think it's a, I can't remember. Supreme, maybe I'm not sure, but it's, maybe RSR, a lot of the fusion lot. Have you even heard it? I was just going to say, I actually haven't heard it. Well, you're in for a treat. I mean, actually, to be fair... I'm sure I love it. To be fair, it is actually quite a decent tune, uh, but maybe you might not like it. We can listen to it later. We'll find out. Um, who's the most famous person that you've ever met? Oh, David Bowie. 
Yeah, I was on stage with him. I performed with him. Wow. It was amazing. What was that like? Well, it's the only time I've got starstruck, put it that way. Wow. Um, I don't get starstruck easy. I performed with quite a few famous people, but he he turned around whilst we were, because he at one point did a drum and bass album, and he turned around and whilst I was, you know, playing, he, he just winked at me and I just turned into jelly. I was like, oh. <laughs> I'm not surprised. I suspect yeah. he has that effect on He's a lot so of people. He's so handsome. It was, it, um, he was amazing. What is your favourite TV show? Ah, uh, ding ding, Law and Order, Special Victims Unit. Unit. Yeah, I like. I love serial killers. I love anything to do with death. Okay. Anything to do with CSI stuff. Anything okay. to do with. Well, know. maybe not a glass blower. It, it's a cop. <laughs> it's a detective. <laughs> or a glass blowing detective. A glass blowing detective uh, from Reading. No. Oh, I think we found. I think we found. We found the new frost. I think shows like The Fall. You know, with Gillian Anderson, just stuff like that. Yeah. That's like sort of high drama okay. and the stakes are high. I love stuff like that. I don't watch benign no. stuff, really. I haven't got a lot of time for TV. So when I do watch something, it's a good series or, okay. you know. Um, what would you say is the best thing about you? Pro well, um, my work ethic, my drive okay. is probably the thing that lights a fire amongst most people. I think I'm put on this planet to light fires. And what about the thing that dampens out those fires? What's your worst trait? Oh, my impatience. Absolutely. <laughs> my, my impatience. I'm incredibly impatient and... Well, we better crack on through this, uh, yeah. this interview then, don't we? Pull your finger out. <laughs> um, tell us one thing about yourself, and I know that your book is very frank and there's not much, I don't think, in there that you haven't uh, discussed. Tell us one thing about yourself that people don't know about you. That I'm shy. I know. <laughs> uh, but there's two people, isn't it? There's DJ Rap, the performer, and there's Charissa, the girl. So Who's here now? Oh, well, I'm DJ Rap right now. Okay, yeah. the, but if you were dating me, then you'd get a completely different version. Right, okay. Right, and I'm a completely different girl. I don't wear makeup. Do you not? I, no, I don't wear makeup. I like to lounge around in boxer shorts or PJs, um, you know, with my hair up in a bun. I'm right. quite normal. Um, and I, I'm quite homely. I like to, you know, I'm the sort of girl that likes to cook dinner and... And glass blow. Do that and glass blowing. Uh, or watching it, at least on YouTube. <laughs> Watch uh, it. That's going to come out wrong in a minute. <laughs> if, if, you were the, uh, if you were the actual queen, uh, what one thing would you change first in the world? Uh, that's easy. I would make everything 24 hours open constantly, so I'd probably solve um, joblessness, and I would make it mandatory that you have had three days off a week. That's a good chance. <laughs> uh, but there's an increasing desire for that to happen, isn't there? And, yeah. you know, hopefully at some point it will. I think working less but being active when you do work and, and, and not making your life just work is, is a healthier way to work and I think you're more productive that way. I agree with you. Uh, we're here with DJ Rap, Queen of the Jungle. This is the 90s Rave Podcast. Get in touch. Hello at the 90s Rave Podcast.co.uk and on all social media channels. So DJ Rap, your book starts here, so I think that it might be a good idea for us to start here with your early life. Uh, and you've referenced some of it in the opening. Uh, you, you, know, you did seem to move around a lot, you experienced constant upheaval. Was that actually quite handy in a way to become a rave DJ? I actually agree with you on that. I think it uh, prepared me for touring and probably why I love it so much and why I'm so good at it. But it's also probably why I'm, I'm, I'm a quite nomadic and as a very much a lone wolf. Uh, you get used to being, as a kid, uh, your life is like there are no other kids to play with, you're, you're in a hotel life, so you have to always be on your best behavior. So my imagination was truly my best friend. I was a Lego freak. I built cities, 
I mean, bigger than this room. I mean, I was, you know, big into building things. So I, I was very introvert as a child. Um, a lot of my time I spent, um, I'm not saying I had a hard life in the sense that it, it, there wasn't poverty. But there was, just because there was money doesn't mean it wasn't hard. No, no. What I mean is, though, is there was, you know, there was horses and all this stuff and it was, it was one hand lovely. But I would have probably swapped all of that to have had more of a normal childhood and all the other things. So I, I learned to get in, involved in books at a very early age. I started reading, I think my first book was, um, oh yeah, The Rats by James Herbert and all the gory stuff that I love. And I think the reason, I'm, you know, after having intense therapy as well, <laughs> the reason I like horror and those kind of things is because it completely takes me away from the world I was in as a child. Okay. So when, when I was exploring why was that, that was what it was. So yeah, imagination, I think it definitely prepared me for the touring life that but I had. In terms of, you had a lonely childhood, um, that encouraged, as you say, creativity and self-reliance. Is that why I, you think that you're so musically creative and entrepreneurial? Um, no. <laughs> it's a short answer. I, don't, I think that it prepared me for touring and that's it. It just, it got me used to being able to what I call prison tour, which is just stay in a hotel, move from place to place. It, that felt like home to me. It didn't feel like, whereas other people... So call, how, come they, you're, how come you're so entrepreneurial then? Where does that come from? Well, to finish the, the, to finish the thought, a lot of people feel like touring is like jail. I've heard right. people moan about that. There's isolating, it can be lonely. See, I don't, I feel like it's a home away from home. Right. You get to a hotel and you're like, oh, I don't have to clean my room. It's lovely. Let's face it, that's the wonderful part of it, right? Um, get to see the world, all of that. Um, the entrepreneurial thing comes, was simply born out of so many people ripping me off. Right. It's that simple. Okay. I just decided to not be the type of uh, person that was frightened of technology. I decided to not be the type of person that worried about, I just thought, well, if I can do it myself, I'll do it better. So that drive comes from a need to control my own ship and take care of my business because I've been ripped off so much in my, in my past. And then I just realized no one's gonna care more about your business than you do. And what about your music? Did your, um, the, the tough times that you experienced as a child influence and continue to influence your music? Again, no, no, not at all. I don't feel that that influences me whatsoever. I feel that my music influences come from uh, a need to express um, you could argue that it comes from a need to express beauty from, but I don't think that I just, you know, took a load of drugs when I was young. I really enjoyed them. I love the trippy psychedelic side of that. I, I like to make music that will impact you, but I always think about how that will impact somebody when they're rolling their tits off. So for me, it's like, you know, I can put myself in that space. I put myself in the space of the fan, the clubber, the me, how I used to enjoy music when I was taking acid or all this stuff and doing it. And I always believe that music should be layered and, and really deep and beautiful and trippy and then just hit you with this hard bass like a wet fish slapping you around the face, you know. So, yeah, that's where it comes. I just, I'm just inspired by the producers. I'm inspired by music I hear. I'm inspired by things I see. But I don't, I don't see a political statement and then go, oh, I'm going to make a tune about that. Having said that, when I produced Learning Curve... Mm. Well, you was, talk about how, how political it was and, a very, and emotional exactly. personally it was. That was a very political record and that was a very personal record. Now the music I make takes to, because we're in the streaming phase, it tends to be about, music is reflective of where you are in your life, right? So, you know, it's not that I don't have anything to say, it's just that I want to produce music that just is beautiful and people can feel better about, because that's what's going on right now. So that is the political statement I'm making right now, I guess, is that like, you know, we're not in a club dancing, I'm not thinking of that so much, I'm more thinking about how it emotes and, and if it touches people and makes them feel good. And you've had so many jobs. <laughs> 
like for some really strange jobs as well when you were younger and growing up and lived in so many places. What was the strangest job that you ever had? Um, the strangest job was a factory job where I was putting Christmas tree lights on. Well, that, I don't know if that was strange. Sounds that, boring. It, yeah, it was boring. Um, the strangest job was when I did a, a bit of, I tried and failed miserably at karaoke singing. That was a bit, that was when I was destitute and broke. That wasn't so long ago, actually. I tried that. <laughs> How like, long? Um, I would say that was probably, well, that was, uh, was it either five? five years ago. Music isn't like you're always set. Music is, the, the reason I love music and do it is not because of what it can give me financially, but I'm in it whether I'm making money or not. So there's been times in my career, loads of times where I've been really doing well and it's been amazing. And then there's been times where I've relied on friends to, to bring me food. It's just the way it goes. That's just life. You know, one of those times was after 2011 where everything sort of collapsed. I, you know, burnt through a lot of my savings and, you know, things really were difficult and it just got bad. So, yeah, there, there were times where things got hard and then there were times when, when it's been, I've been lucky. I'm going through a good, good phase right Is now. Is it all about when you're self, I'm self-employed? Um, and I have been for about 10 years. At first, it's like scary thinking that, you you know, when, when I'm, how am I going to pay for my mortgage and everything? And you do have periods like that. But is it about holding your nerve and being like, I've been here before, I'll be okay again? Um, yeah, it's totally about hot. I'm too stubborn to quit. So, you know, it, it, I always say victories for those who believe in it and believe in it long enough. And, and I, I, like I said, I'm not interested in doing anything else. So it's either this or die. And do you ever think that, that's get... my philosophy? It's, it's, it's either this or die. Do you so ever make think it work. Go back to it again in terms of um, you know a, a tough time, or do you feel that you've got you've put yourself in a position with some of the moves you've made in recent years where you're like, I will never go back to that moment again. I, I feel I've put myself in a good position because I've uh, imagine music is a well. This is how I think of it as a tree, right? Um, with lots of branches. So there's sync licensing. Patreon, uh, merch, there's all these different branches that you have, right, in order to, to make it work. Um, and because I was in America for so long, I leaned very heavily on that rather than gigs. So for me, not having gigs with COVID, whilst it is upsetting and, yes, a huge financial loss and all of that stuff, I also have been used to that. Mm. So I've learned to make a living from teaching. I teach Ableton. I have a music school called Online um, Music Tech Collective. You know, So my income sources are, are branched out. They're not stuck to the tree trunk. So also, I don't need much money to live. Mm. I'm not one of these people that, that like, needs a lot of stuff. I put everything back into the business. I'd rather buy GoPro camera than dinner. So yeah, do you know what I mean? It's like, I'm not- That's why you look so good. <laughs> Don't even... <laughs> I, I, you know, I, uh, I shop at Lidl. I love Lidl. Um, do you? I do, it's amazing. I, um, I, I just can't get it. I, I'm all, I mean, I just, this is gonna make me sound terrible, but you I snog. just hate the, <laughs> the shopping experience of Lidl, you know, where they just throw all your shopping at you at the end of the trip. And there's no, there's no room to they put don't. it. And you're like, what are you ah! talking about? Like packing it away quicker than they can throw it. I like Waitrose. I, I, I love a bargain so long as the food is clean and it's good. And when I say, say clean, I mean non-processed and it's good. But I've got a friend that worked at the factories and she said to me, she goes, the only difference is a sticker. Yeah, yeah, no, so, sorry, that. I'm going to shop. That might be the, the biggest revelation we get today, that DJ Rap shops at Lidl. So if you are in Lidl in Red, <laughs> 
wedding. And I want uh, to do glass blowing. And, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah they're revelations we never thought we would get, but we've yeah. got them. No, I love a bargain. But what I'm saying is I put my money in my business and then I am cautious about how I spend the rest. So I live very frugally just so that I can make sure that I can maintain my business. And that's the thing. You've got to make a decision about what's important to you. So if you want to go buy, you know, if, if I want to go spend my money on shoes and things like that instead, then my business will suffer. So I, I've never done that. I've always been... The business is thriving, but you've got no shoes. Oh, That's I have got lots saying. of shoes. Oh, when got... I was doing well, <laughs> I did love a shop there. <laughs> So we're still here with uh, DJ Rap, Sharisa uh, is a real name. Um, we've talked about your early years, but I want to talk about your early years of rave and how you got into it. How and when did you first discover and get into rave music? Um, I think 1988 was when I really got into it um, for the first time. And, I, you know, I just was interested in raving. Obviously, I'd left home very young, I'd left home at 14. So I wanted to just... Basically, I <laughs> all right. Well, I started off. There was my best friend Amanda, and um, we had another friend as well, <laughs> and um, who probably won't want to be named. But they had like a dance troupe sort of thing, and then they, and my my friend Amanda was like, "Well, I can get you a job at Jacqueline's waitressing, but you have to wear a bikini and you have to waitress, and um, you know, and then you have to sort of dance on a podium and do this sort of thing and whatnot." So we would take Pro Plus, keep us up, and we'd be dancing. And then there was a, a pub job in Peckham where we had to dance on the roof. And it was like, you know, we, the first sort of tunes that you started to hear, you know, that, that were the first sort of ravey tunes, um, I remember back in the day. And then they got, I, I, you know, we just were like, we love this music, we love this thing. And then it was just a matter of just pirate radio station and going and listening and just raving. And, and look, I'm not going to lie, we were just really loved taking drugs and loved getting mashed and loved going to these. And again, all the things that I listed earlier, the reasons why I fell in love with, with all of it. I mean, the first time I went to a rave, it was uh, in Hackney in Wallace Road, I believe. And um, I think Dave Angel was playing. And I remember walking in and seeing him and just thinking, oh my God, he's so beautiful. And he was all dressed in white. And I was just like, oh, you know. Were you amazing. on drugs at this point? Of course I was yes, on fucking drugs. <laughs> <laughs> It's just, but, you know, um, it was just amazing, you know, to see this whole thing. And I, I remember the first time I, I, I took a pill and it was like, you know, I was, I was, it was a prolific moment. And I, I'm not one for highlighting the drugs, because, but they do go hand in hand with what the early experiences were. But, you know, I, I, I took this pill and I held on to my friend because I literally felt the bottom of me was being thrown out. And then I remember this pivotal moment, which I will never forget as long as I live, going into the toilet, and there was about five or six black girls come in, and they just grabbed me, and we started singing, If You Love Me, Give Me a Sign, and dancing in a circle. And this is the thing, see, like, people have to understand, there was no colour, there was no sex, there was no... Everyone just... Do you know what I mean? It was just like... What's your name? Where are you from? Sit down cross-legged and talk. And a bunch of you talk. No one gave a, a shit about, you know, your black, white, Chinese, Asian, you, if, if you were abused, this, that. All us people just got together and that was it. So, yeah, I never, I never forgot it and I was hooked the moment. I, at that time, I, I was saving up and I had another odd job, actually, talking of odd jobs at school dinners. The dinner lady. No, school dinner's the place where, oh, right. <laughs> where you spanked people 
Oh, that's very different they, to what they, I was thinking. Yeah, no, School Dinners was a place where, and I took the job because I wanted to buy records, right? Right. So I'd play piano and I'd sing songs, but you'd actually, you'd go around to people eating their dinner, and if they'd been naughty, you'd be like, sit up, and you'd give them a little tap. It's just gross, I know. It just, I was just like, but look, look, if you're making 20 quid a night, and you're 16, that's a lot of money. Mm. And then you're going to, you know, the record shops in Soho and all the shops and you're blowing it on records, you know. And it's just like, but that's how I paid for my records, you know. That's a little bit further on. But the point is, how did I get into the rave scene was that, you know, started off dancing in certain clubs and then meeting the girls and then being like... So you were looking for a, a for want of a better word, a, a, a family because you'd left home from your family and you found one in the rave scene. Absolutely, yeah. Now, you also did loads of acid over the years as well. What is it about acid that you really God, liked? I, I've probably done about 150 to 200 trips. I'm surprised I'm alive. I did have a near-death experience which stopped me cold and I did stop after that. Um, but, yeah, what do you mean, what is it about it? What, what... Well, some people just don't like it. I mean, some people just doesn't well, yeah, gel with I, them, you know. It's, it's too much. I do say to, I've, you know, family members, I, I, I'm like, please don't take it because it can really psychologically fray your brain. And, uh, you know, but I, I just like the whole experience of I'd go into a room, put all my DJ trippy lights on, turn it, and I, I said this to somebody the other day, it's the closest I felt to God ever. You know, I just felt that I was having these really, it was healing for me. I wanted to be alone when I was doing it for the first couple of hours and then I'd join everybody else wherever they were in the rooms or whatever. And, and you know, for me, it was just a time where I could really, I don't know, make peace with myself, feel feel close to God, have conversations with him. That's how I felt, you know, that was how I felt. And after your first rave, you went raving all the time. Um, oh my God, you couldn't keep us away. Fire <laughs> couldn't keep us away. We all chipped in, me and my mates, we got a TR7, which no doubt every time we went to a rave, a part fell off this bloody car. And we would be, you know, hitchhiking home or crossing fields, <laughs> stepping in cow shit. It was just a nightmare. That car was a nightmare, but it cost us 200 pounds. <laughs> And we all chipped in and got it together. So we'd get to the rave all right, but sometimes we wouldn't get back and we'd be there. I know that feeling. I've been, been there and, and going to raves and stuck on the side but, of the motorway. you know, I loved that car. That car was amazing. What were your, as a raver, what, what have been your favourite raves over the years to go to? Well, all the early ones, Clink Street, you know, all of that stuff. I mean... Uh, uh, you, Gosh, you're asking me to remember stuff and I can't even remember last week, but I'll do my best. Uh, it, at the end of the day, what I remember was it wasn't so much even the going the raves. It was the, the fact that these friends, we all lived together and then we would go to the raves together. So Dungeons, that was just, you know, oh my God, that place was incredible. Yeah, I've seen a video of, uh, in Lee Valley, uh, yeah, in Lee Valley, Lee Road, Lee? Lee Bridge Road, Lee Bridge wasn't it? Road, yeah, Lee Bridge yeah. Road. I've seen a video of it, it yeah. looks amazing. Dungeons was the go-to place. Oh my God, I love that place. And, you know, you'd go to places like Clinkstein and all the usual places that everyone went to. But for me, it was just like, it wasn't so much the rave. That was part of it. But it was the coming, the group, the posse of us, you know, and, and that just, it would go on for days and days and days. So what makes a great rave for you? Is, is, is it the people then? Yeah, it's the people. Right. Yeah. There's nothing about the production or the sound or the type of music? Well, or I think that was all that? part of it, but I, I, obviously I think that weaves the whole picture. But I think, you know, if you were to go to a rave on your own, it would be a very different experience than when you go with 20 Have you people. been on your own? I, Raven? Yeah, I have. And how, did you find, how have you found that? I was, I didn't care, I loved it. I think it's better with people. Yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> you end up going on your own. Sometimes things happen, whatever. But, like, that that didn't really, you know, I, I can't remember a time where I really was on my own. I've gone to a rave on my own because 
um, when I was coming back here and thinking about moving here, obviously I was sort of on my own. But you, here's the thing about raving on your own. You're never actually on your own no. because you know every DJ, you know everybody, you know every every person. So you walk in alone, but you, you're surrounded by everybody right away. So yeah. And you even put on three-day raves in your own home in Black Horse Road uh, with the Rat Pack playing. I mean, honestly, I, I live near there <laughs> and I drive past there quite a lot because it's between my house and my, and my and my partner's parents' house. And I drive past and I often go, I wonder which one, the, which which, uh, which flat it was that, that Rat was having those three-day parties at. So I had a cat called Trip and basically, you know, we were at that time going to places like, well, you know, Rage, Astoria, all that stuff, you know, blah, blah, blah. But when it first started, I was in a band called Zionix with Paul Oakenfold, who, you know, there was a guy called Jay Janani, who was like the drummer, I believe, and Paul was in it. And this was before all of this started. And Paul was the first person, I believe, to actually start that night at Rage. And I remember him saying to me, you know, if this doesn't fly in six weeks, I'm sort of running, I'm running out of money. And then the last week, loads of people came. And it was like, so... Um, you know, we would go there and I was at Rage and my mate Amanda was like, what are you doing? And I'm like, oh, I'm handing out invites, like bits of paper with my address on it to everyone and we're going to have a party. It's going to be epic. And she's like, how many bits of paper have you exactly handed out? And I'm like, what, about 250 bits, you know? And we had these massive speakers that were literally up as high as, as like that, that speaker up there and as wide as probably a record shelf. We had two of those. I had written notes to all the neighbours saying I'm having a party. Sorry about that. Um, you know, welcome to join sort of thing. Rat Pack. Did any of them join? Yeah. Yeah. And then um, I had this cat, like I said, called Trip, who would like sit in my dungarees pocket. And when I'd go to pubs, because before all of this started, we would all go to pubs. So it'd be Mr. C and all those places. You know, we'd all go to these pubs and we'd dance. And that's where the music all started in, in pubs, really. And it was like, you know, I'd have this cat on my dungarees. It was just out there and we would all be getting on the mic, emceeing and rapping and, you know, thinking that we could rap anyway. It was quite fun. Uh, it's one of the reasons why I ended up being called DJ Rap. And, you know, it, it was just funny because we would do all this and then this party happened and three days later it's still going, you know, and the cat's run away and there's a poor print of cocaine and he's just gone out <laughs> of the <Christ>. window. <laughs> Never saw the cat again. Gone. That was it. And well, then, well, at least he left on a high. Yes. Poor thing. But, um, you know, I, I don't know what happened. <laughs> you know, it just went on for days and days and eventually it ended. But, yeah, it was one of the most... It must have been incredibly popular with we had, the I had bouncers on the door as well. <laughs> I had bouncers on the door and my mate Amanda, who lived with me, she was like, she walked in she, and, and they say, yeah, what's the password? And she's like, I bloody live here. You've been to Blackwater Road recently? It's very, very different now. Yeah. It's all developed and fancy. I don't oh. think that would go down very well uh, in 2020. Actually, I think that party was in Leightonstone. Oh, okay, right. I, I lived mean, in Blackwater Road. That thing. was when I lived with everybody in the flats opposite the station, but that party was in, in Leightonstone. Okay. So, yeah. yeah. And we've talked about what makes a good rave for you. What about a bad one? And what about someone proposing to you on stage? Oh, you so went there. <laughs> <laughs> For anybody that doesn't know this, it is in your book, to be fair. Uh, anyone that doesn't know this, uh, and I'm interviewing him soon, uh, MCMC, uh, you were going out for a period and... He decided well, we, that that was the right time to, to propose. I, uh, well, he's a really lovely guy. He's a lot of fun, okay? And um, I think we would go... We, now, look, he's going to contradict this because I don't have a great recollection. My memory's awful. So I'm just <laughs> going to put that caveat there. But I think we only went out with each other for... It was either three weeks or three months. It's one of those two. Okay. I honestly can't remember. Not Probably not long enough for a, for a proposal on stage then. No, but the thing is, is that we really had a good time. We were really, really, we did have a lot of fun. We would take, you know, we would take 
blankets with all our mates. We got up to camp. Where was it, that part? Camden, not Camden. You know, the, the Clapham, Common. Clapham Common, that was it. We'd take blankets, we'd watch the sunrise in Clapham Common with all our mates. It was just a good time, mm. you know, it was just a lot of fun. And needless to say, I think that we just got carried away with how much fun it was. And then one night I'm DJing at Elevation and I remember Groove Rider and Fabio sort of standing in the corner. And then he comes on stage and he proposes to me and you've got like, Thousands of people gurning off their trolleys going, say yes, say yes, say yes. How can you say no? <laughs> well, you didn't, did you? Oh, no, I was like, yeah, sure, no, I'll kill you. <laughs> yeah, well, you, must have been, you must have been pretty furious at him because that's a bad position to I, put anybody in. I believe that I finished with him that night. Oh, right, I, I, okay. can't, I think I did. I can't. So you were, very, you were proposed for a very short time. <laughs> yeah, but then, but, then, oh, sorry, and, but here's the best bit. Fun, all I remember seeing is Fabio and Groove Rider pissing themselves laughing like doubled over because the look of terror on my face was just you know because I had to make a decision upset people on a high or do I and, and, and I, I should have said in, in hindsight I probably should have said oh that's lovely why don't we discuss this later yeah. so, this isn't how I imagined it Morris and then the worst part about it is it's funky I, I don't know if we split up that night or if it was shortly after that, but I think that was a big part of it. But I can't remember why we split up. He was a lovely chap. Anyway, it was, it, was a, it was all a laugh. But Funky, who I love, you know, the promoter, he then does a flyer with me and Morris's head and heart, you know, and puts it out as the next elevation flyer. Amazing. It was amazing. Even though you'd already split up. So disappointed, so disappointed all those ravers who came along to see uh, see this love's, love's young dream. Love's, raves love's young dream. God, I don't know. It was all, it, do you know what? Back in those days, it was, it was just a blur. I don't, I don't even know what I was doing and what, what was, you know. <laughs> but I look back at that fondly and I saw him in LA just before I left here and we hadn't seen each other for like 25 years, you know, and big hugs and how are you? And it's just like, it's all good, you know nice. what I mean? But I can't really remember how it ended or what happened, but I do know that he was a lot of fun. Well, we'll ask him when we interview him. He was a lot and, of fun. And, you and, tell him I said that. I will indeed. Uh, but it's a great story and it's a, a nice one to end the rave section on. Tom Latram here with DJ Rap on Raw, the 90s rave podcast. We've talked about your early years, how you got into rave music. But as for your DJing, um, when did you decide to start DJing and how did you go about doing that and learning it, etc.? Well, remember you mentioned Black Horse Road. Mm -hmm. That's where all that happened. Okay. So um, Sally, myself, Amanda, Spam, that was her name. <laughs> she, don't ask. Uh, we all went to... Um, a rave one night and 
there was a DJ there, there was two DJs there called Dem2. And I don't know if you know anything about these guys, but, but, but they're quite a good looking bunch, you know, and sort of, I was sort of edging towards the crowd to get closer to take a look at Dean, I think, because I was like, he's quite Thor-like, uh, before Thor was a thing. Anyway, so off I go, edging towards it, and then he dropped that da 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 and it just drove everybody completely nuts. I think it was the first time that had been right. dropped, and it's the first time certainly that sort of breakbeat tune had been heard of that style. And I turned around, and I forgot about how cute he was and all of that, and I turned around and I looked at the audience and I just looked at the... Control is the wrong word, but I looked at the hold he had on everybody and how people were reacting to him. It was like he was giving everyone this massive giant hug and that they were hugging him back. And I just had this sort of weird feeling... Were you feeling, also on drugs at the same time? Mm, <laughs> not sure if I had it. Oh, okay. That, no, I don't think I was. I think I, we just got there sort of thing. Okay. And um, I got this weird feeling in my tummy. And I just had this weird feeling. I don't know if you've ever been proposed to or, you know, because it's no, happened to me a few but times. but thank you for, uh, for reminding me. Well, well <laughs> it happens a few times and you get this weird feeling. It's a really weird sort of feeling, right, when it's genuine and, and whatever. And I got this weird feeling and I looked and I just knew, light bulb moment, I just knew this was what I wanted to do. It just penny dropped, click. And I turned to my friends and I just went, I... I'm going to be a DJ and a producer. I know what I'm going to do. And everyone was just like hugging and dancing. Yeah, we don't have to pay to get into raves. And, you know, they were all excited for me. And, it, that, and the very next day, I got a Centronic turntable and we had a tape deck in the apartment. And I would start to learn to mix that way. And then a guy called Jeff B helped me actually mix because he had equipment. And yeah, the rest was sort of pirate radio station. And did you ever doubt yourself from that point that you were going to be a DJ and this was your calling? I never had doubts about myself, period. Oh, very good. <laughs> Do you remember your first gig? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was terrified. Um, for all my confidence, I'm a complete um, bag of nerves before I perform it. Or before the stream, I'm doing a stream for my fans, I'll, I'll feel physically sick. Really? Yeah, I always feel physically sick and horrible. Why before I go. do you think that? Because nerves are your friend. They let you know you're alive. It's because you want it to go well, because a million things can go wrong, because... Just because you're excited, it's the level of excitement. And I suppose if you don't have it, I mean, it keeps you focused and it keeps you, you know, makes you uh, raise your standards, doesn't it? I mean, you know, like when I presented on like Talk Sport, for instance, I would always get nerves before. They, they, they become less as you go on and you become more experienced, but you still have them. But they keep you on, on point, I suppose. I think the thing about nerves is that um, there was a time where I was so bored when I was DJing at a show. Uh, that I did pick up the mic and say, I'm done, that's it. Oh, really? Yeah, that was it, respect in LA. I, I said, I'm not good. And I, did, I didn't DJ again for like four years. So I was just I was like, I'm done. Because I don't think it's fair on the audience if you're feeling that way and you're just not feeling it. And I always said the moment I'm not feeling it, that's when I'm done. So When you were DJing, so when, how old were you, say, for instance, those big raves in the early 90s that you started playing because you, know, you played a whole, a whole bunch of big raves how old were you? What, when I started DJing? Well, no, when you started DJing the bigger events in the sort of early 90s. I don't know the exact age, man. I can't, I can't really... Because I saw a brilliant video of you. I think, I it think was I was a... 18. Exactly. So, I mean, how did you cope with those nerves? You must have been incredibly nervous at some of those massive events. How did you cope with that? I don't think I really got that nervous until... It, it, it was nerves, but I think it was more excitement. But I always had my mates with me. So it was just right. like this, you're going to go on and kill it sort of nerves. Not nerves like, oh, what if I mess up? I never th felt like that. It was just like, 
it, just a frustration not being able to go on now and thinking of the tunes that you're going to play and how what the crowd need. And to, I think part of the job of being a DJ is telepathy. You walk into a place and you go, I know exactly what they want to hear. I know exactly what tune to start with. I know exactly what's going to make everyone pop. And 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 that's it. You're, you're sort of relying on your wits. So you don't plan your set? I don't. Or never? Uh, to any point, to any degree? It depends, like for the streams I do for my patrons, not really, because I do so many and it's like, mm. I don't want things to feel over rehearsed. But if I was doing a gig with Sony, there would be six weeks rehearsal because a lot of my stuff was being played live by a band and things like that. Sometimes I sort of, I don't think I plan my sets. I think the way to put it is I practice them to death. Okay. So that I know what, what will work with yeah. what. But uh, music turns around so quickly in drum and bass that, you know. Well, how would you describe your DJ and stuff? Because I, I saw an interview with you when you were very fresh-faced, very young, can't remember what rave it was, it was around about 93, when it was a still of a, a, a mix between hardcore and, and jungle, it hadn't made that split yet. Um, and you said that you just played the tracks that the ravers wanted. Oh, I know the interview you're talking uh, about, yeah. is, is that sort of crowd-pleasing part of your longevity? Uh, absolutely, I'm a crowd pleaser. I'm, I, I think there are DJs that they prefer to lead the path with the most exclusive music and they feel that, that their job is to educate people for the music. I feel my job is to bring some of that music in, but ultimately my job is to make you feel good, forget about whatever you're troubled with and, you know, I'm a musical therapist, right? So my job is to make people dance and feel happy and I like the same tunes that they like, luckily, so it's all good. <laughs> and you have doubted yourself DJing, uh, you know, from the book, you, you, you say that you did doubt yourself DJing, particularly at the start, about whether you were any good or not and, and all that sort of thing. Do you think that's to do with being female? Uh, I think it's just being to do with having balls and just saying, <laughs> why not? I don't doubt myself. It's got nothing to do with being female. You don't know, but you did, you did at the time. And I, 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 I just no, wonder I whether some of the male no, 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 DJs would ever feel that or even certainly not admit it. I didn't doubt myself. That, let, me, let, me, let me be clear. I didn't doubt myself. I was hard on myself. There's a difference. Because I saw how high the bar was. And I, I saw that, that you couldn't just be a DJ. You had to produce. You had to run a label. You had to do all this stuff. And I sometimes had doubts about my musical abilities in the sense of production because I'm typically a writer more than a producer and although I can produce music I, my strengths are much more in writing the tune coming up with the vibe arranging it all in the old school way was to then get somebody else to mix and master it well now it's a whole different thing it's all about plugins and this that and you know a lot of the soul went out of it for me when it became about that because you're you're a writer you know singer songwriter that's the way I work so I didn't doubt myself as a DJ, and I certainly didn't doubt myself when I was young. Um, I actually thought I was infallible and there was nothing I couldn't do. As I got older and bad experiences happened to me and I lost work and I got ripped off, then I started to, I went through a real crisis of actually really doubting myself. I actually lost all my confidence and that has taken, I think, probably six years to get back, which right. is why I'm making music again now and DJing again now. Right. It happens, you know? And, Musical uh, impotence, not well, fun. But you're 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 a um, someone who broke down barriers. I think there's a there's a great story in the book about how you became the first woman to play the main room of any electronic music club. I, it's worth you telling again. So please do tell uh, for anyone that hasn't heard this. Uh, well, you're talking about Astoria, I think. So basically, there was a Keith Moon bar there, and all us ladies would DJ there, and um, that Fabio and Groove would be in the main in the main room, and you know we'd go there after our sets and listen to them and watch them in awe and just be like. You know what would, and, but I'd be watching them piss, thinking I just want to be up there. <laughs> I could do. I'm just as good. Yeah. <laughs> you know why can't I? Why is it I'm not allowed to play in there? And so the first night I got the gig at the Keith Moon Bar, this guy comes up to me and he was like, you know, 
So what do you think of this? How do you, how do you like it? I went, well, it's a piece of shit, isn't it? Look at the needles there. <laughs> Fisher Price. I went, oh, this is like Lego. It's not even real gear. And he goes, oh, really? He goes, well, I'm the promoter. I'm the one that booked you. And I was like, ah, it's lovely. Hello. This, is, this is really wonderful gear when you look at it the second time more closely. No, and I said to him, he goes, well, what's your problem then? And, and I said to him, well, if you really want to know, I think it sucks that we get this gear and they get that gear and it's much better in there and I want to be in there and that's it. And he just, he sort of patted me on the shoulder and he went, no girls play in that room. And, and then that was it. And, um, but then it became a standing joke between us. Ever, and I'd been there now six weeks. And he came up to me and he was like, still hating it, rap. And I was like, piece of shit. <laughs> and, he, and he was like, it'd just be a laugh and we'd have this banter and that'd be it. But I would destroy that Keith Moon bar. I'd play my heart out. And then one day Fabio, for whatever reason, didn't turn up. And, um, you know, he came up to me and he said, you better be as good as you say you are. And I said, well, you've watched me for six weeks, you know, all cocky, thinking I could do everything. And then he goes, go on, then you're off. Dust, gone. And then... I got up there and I looked at the console and I was like, fuck, I don't know how to use any of this shit. This isn't the same gear. What am I going to do? This is horrible. And there was a sound guy and then he went, do you want a tip? And Because he saw my white face and I was like, yes, please. <laughs> and he went, every channel's the same. So tops, mids, bass, channel, this one, headphone jack, duh, that's it. Good? I'm like, good, got it. That's it. And it was just, it was amazing after that. And I, I, I did destroy the place. I had a good time. I became a resident. And then I asked for the same money as the boys and I got fired. Mm. And even, and I'm what not going to say any names, ridiculous. but even my agent went, who do you think you are, Fabio Groove? And I went, no, who I think I am is someone that should get paid the same if I'm doing the same job. Yes, and then I made it a point to never play in a back room again. I would not. I refused every booking that was just with the girls because I was like, no, we should just be in there, mm. period. To this day, I won't do it. I, I want to ask you, a couple of people have mentioned it when we, we put out, we said that you were, we, we announced you as a guest and people asked questions, our audience. One of them, one of the questions a couple of people asked was about when you played Mr. Kirk's Nightmare, um, after, sorry, uh, which is about a son who's died. You better come down to the station. Um, after a, a young Your lad son is dead. was, I, th I think, was sort of stabbed and was to death or, uh, you know, or died or not. But people said it was deliberate and that you had somehow gone in there and heartlessly, callously played this. Wow. And then you, you were harassed by newspaper journalists, you had all your bookings cancelled. How did you feel to be in the eye of a storm like that? Well, anyone who thinks I did that on purpose is just an idiot, right? I mean, yeah. how stupid are you? Um, obviously, nobody does that on purpose. So, But what actually happened, if you really want to know what happened, was that um, I was playing for telepathy and I was just about to go on and pig bag, I think... Pig bag was going on after me. I don't know who was on before, to be honest. I can't remember. But I went on and I played and I dropped Mr. Kirk's Nightmare, which is a massive record. And Pig bag came up to me and he goes, how could you have done that? And I said, done what? He goes, someone stabbed outside. I said, well, I'm at telepathy, but I'm not telepathic. I, I, he came up to me and said that and I, I didn't know what he meant. And I rushed outside and I saw body with like um, a sheet over it or something, whatever wow. they put over it. And... Um, yeah, it was just it was just unfortunate that I played that record. It was my last record of the set. And at the same time right. as that was happening, someone was losing their life, God rest his soul, you know. Well, the next day, well, the next day, what happened was is the police came around to take statements from everybody. And um, they were like, oh, you're the DJ everybody hates. 
And I was like, what? And then they were like, yeah, everyone thinks you've played, you know, and, and took my statement. Suddenly, all my bookings gone. I lost every booking. People actually thought that, you know, this was the beginning of me starting to form a really hard shell around myself. This is when I would say the bubble popped for me and I started to see how quickly people can turn against you in this scene mm. multiple how times. How did that feel? Yeah, it felt really lonely, really, really horrible. I was heartbroken. So I went up north, like any good girl would. <laughs> Winter's coming. I went up north and um, started playing the Eclipse. It was fantastic. So I got in line and I saw that there was this DJ called Sasha. And I was like, who's she then? She seems to be pretty big. And Sasha tapped me on the so shoulder and he was like, I'm Sasha, nice to meet you. And I was like, right, this is my new kingdom. <laughs> I'm going to go here. So yeah, Eclipse was, was wonderful. Mm. Yeah. Was that one of your favourite raves to play? Absolutely. It was wonderful. That, Stoke and Trent, Shelley's. Oh, my goodness. Ugh. What are the other big raves that you've really enjoyed? Rain Dance, who put me on the map. Richard was the first person to let me play the 12 o'clock, to play a massive rave. He was the first one to book me after the Astoria thing. Right. right after that, he. I think a lot of promoters saw that this was kind of a good gimmick. But then when you got on the decks and you, you just... You can't. You've got to deliver. When you destroyed, mm. it was like, this is a gimmick and we want to be the first promoters to put her on because right. she's bloody good. And that was it, you know. Right. So, yeah. Did you have to act in a certain, different way being a woman? Initially, to get my DJ gigs, I had left home at 14 and I think I was about 16. And, you know, I was at a, I, was it about 17 maybe, unemployment office. I don't know what it was. You have to call and look for a job. So I called promoters and I just pretended that I was my brother was a DJ and that he was going to send a mixtape in and would that be okay? And his name is DJ Rap. And then I'd turn up and they'd be like, ah, you, you're a girl. And I'd be like, well, just because I've got tits doesn't mean I can't DJ with balls, mate. Give me a shot. You know, and that was it. It was just like this bravado. And really what put me on the map was, you know, the, the pirate radio stations that I started on. I started off on Rave FM. Um, cool Ham Flex helped me learn how to mix. He was awesome. Uh, really wonderful, wonderful guy. And, uh, you know, uh, then I went on Fantasy. Hype introduced me to Fantasy. And Foxy was just, he was, he's what I call the Clark Gable of the scene. You know, he's got that gap in his teeth and that mischievous grin. He's just like, what's wrong with all the porn on the walls? And I was like, take it down. I won't DJ. And he's like, well, then don't DJ. And I was like, all right. <laughs> just, I'll take it down and I'll put it back up. <laughs> so I'd walk into like, you know, the place where you'd all huddle and I'd take it down, put it back up. And eventually I got my slots got to better times and better times. You'd be sleeping there with a sleeping bag waiting for your shift. See, that's the thing people don't understand the dues that have been put in. We've all paid our dues. And, you know, a lot of these new producers, they don't have to go through what we went through. <laughs> mm. Were they like, I've never been in a pirate radio studio. Did you ever... Uh, like, are they, are they as you would imagine? Uh, grim, bit dirty, oh, being raided. Really? Climbing up the walls. It was disgusting. Ugh, ew. Wow. Yeah, you couldn't catch me doing that now. No, indeed. <laughs> um, <laughs> Paula, you talk in the book about Paul Oakenfold, Carl Cox, and Hype all sort of looking after you and taking you under their wing. Uh, how did they do so? Well, Hype's a moany bugger, but he's got a heart of gold underneath all of it. And, you know, he he has always looked out for me. Um, he gave me my first break. Uh, he got me an agent when I came back here two years ago, you know, hooked me up with uh, Chris from UAA. He's, he's 
got me in at fantasy. He, he always teases me that I owe him a lot of commission. You know, just just looking out sort of thing. We always hung out. He's wonderful. Carl, I used to call my big brother. And, uh, you know, I haven't seen him for years and years and years. But, you know, we used to go around Oakville's house with Carl Cox, all of them. And they'd bring me bits of chocolate and we'd all just hang out. And we just hung out. You know, Mr. C, Richard, all of us, we all just hung out. It was wonderful. fantastic. Yeah, it was good. Back in the days, I think the DJs were more ravers. So we all sort of hung out and go to each other's houses a bit more. I, that's what I miss now. But of course, it's turned into a business and I've been here for 20 years. So what do you expect? You know, things change. And how do you rate yourself against the other DJs in the 90s rave scene? In what aspect? How good you are. How good I am? Mm -hmm. I think I'm pretty fucking good. The, uh, <laughs> where do you rank? Because uh, hype is right up there, isn't he? I mean, in terms of his skill I think level. that's a weird question to ask. I mean, it's sort of up to the fans, I think. But I, I know I'm a really good DJ. I know I'm a good producer. I'm happy with that. There's always someone better. You know, I'll sit down, I'll watch Randall. But there isn't always someone better. That's the point. There is. Someone is at the top. There's someone? No. Don't believe the bloody charts and things like that i mean that's that. not charts but someone well, is literally the best do dj you in the honestly world. believe that in the mix mag chart that that no, number I mean, one dj is the best nonsense, right it? okay so what is better because everyone is unique right. so i don't agree with that I, that's why i don't agree with polls and things like that and i you know couldn't get, look i watch randall play a set no one can roll a mix like that man no one can do what he can do on a good night there's no one better than him Watch Fabio on a good night. There's no one better than him. Watch Frost. Watch Hype do the scratch. There's no. These guys are the best in the fucking world. They are amaze balls, right? Do I think I can cut it with them? Yeah, I do. You say that uh, everyone is good and everyone believes that they're the best. Uh, was there any competition among DJs and maybe there, is there still competition among DJs in the in the rave scene? I think that, I, I think um, it's highly competitive. But like, again, like I'm saying, the bar is really high. You are messing with the best in the business. They are the best, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Drum and bass producers, it, if you've ever tried to produce drum and bass, it is the hardest music to produce. It's not like all the other genres. So these Why? guys... Why? Why is that? Well, the frequencies, the way the bass is different, like in-house, predominantly the kick, and it's a whole different thing here. It's all about the sub-bass and letting that... You know, just the frequencies completely right. differently. It's all sub-bass heavy, letting that snare crack through and the compression and all the stuff and all the, the sound design and just the, the arsake of making music with the, with the mixing and mastering in mind, you know, and doing all that. I mean, these guys are, like, basically playing audio jitsu and twisting stuff in a way that no other producers sort of do, which is why hip-hop producers hire drum and bass producers to help them produce pot songs and a lot of stuff, you know, a lot of that stuff. Like look at Timberland and people like that. They're influenced by drum and bass producers. Film music, drum and bass producers, you know. So you are messing with the best. Is there competition? I think we all secretly like that. I think I know I love going up there going, I'm going to go for that hour. I'm going to get on the decks and it's my job to destroy obliterate, <laughs> be the best they can be. That doesn't mean I am, but that's my intention. Do you know what I mean? My intention is to go on there and just make that crowd throw shoes in the air. You know, that's what I want them to do. I want them to lose their minds. And I get pissed if it doesn't feel that way. So yeah, it's competitive, but I think it's a healthy, I don't think anyone's sitting there going, I, I've certainly never had this thought where I've gone, oh, I'm better than so-and-so, I'm better than so I've never, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't even, it, because, why? It, but I do sit there going, oh, oh, wow, he just, 
oh, right, oh, it's on. You know, it, it's a, a sea biscuit okay. syndrome. The horse is in front of you, yeah, yeah. you suddenly run Health, faster. Healthy, healthy rivalry. Well, if you play tennis with better tennis players, your game's going to be exponentially. I play with my dad and he beats me every time. It's incredibly embarrassing. Um, what about MCs? Uh, are you a fan of MCs? Well, I don't like marrying them. Well, no, no indeed. <laughs> that's, we that's established that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I think MCs are amazing, and and there there are so many great ones. I mean, goodness, you know. Um, so yeah, the, I don't like an MC that just talks constantly. Who are your favourite MCs, but that work best with you, with your style of uh, of DJ? Uh well, obviously the usual favourites. Um, you know, my favourite MC to work with was Stevie Hyper D, obviously, because um, he. He had interesting lyrics. What he said was fundamentally deep and important. It wasn't just like, blah, 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 blah. it was deep stuff. What was that? All right, we'll just start again with Steve Hyper D. That's fine. My, my favourite MC was, of course, Stevie Hyper D, uh, because it wasn't just that he made a bunch of noise and was just like, blah, blah, blah. He, he actually had really intense lyrics that meant something. Um, you know, he was a poet. Um, mm. So I loved him probably the best. Um, and also because he's so, he, he, he's still such a huge legend. People are still, you know, he's never gone away. People die and they pass and then they're passed. But Stevie is just with us all the time. I believe he's raving next to us every single rave. Um, does does his, um, the fact that he did pass create that legacy and, and, and you remember him as this like super incredible fantastic MC that you you might not talk about him in the same way if he was still alive you know? no Stevie was a force of nature right. he got on the stage and it just was like a tornado and, and your sets were better because he was there right. you know he made you good <laughs> so no I don't think I wish he was still here so much but no I, I mean you know I love Fearless. Fearless has got amazing energy and we are often paired together and he is he is my brother. We we I mean we grew up together so like you know love that guy. He's amazing. Um GQ and Randall legendary pairings. I think it's more about the pairings right. and, and that sort of thing. You know, um Navigate is amazing. I mean I, they're all good. I mean right I don't really know an MC that I've worked with that I think I'll oh, just shut up because I'd unplug him anyway. Well have you pl unplugged people? Of during... course. Yeah, I've thrown water times? at them okay. all kinds of things. <laughs> Yeah, it's like, shut up. God's <laughs> sake, there's a lyric in this song. I'm playing General Levy. But they're, they're, Well, that's probably why they're talking. Uh, but, Stop talking over the record when someone is yapping already over the record. But they're probably the ones that aren't at the very top, are they? Because there's a well, reason why those ones why are at I the top. That's why I said I don't work with people like that. I've, I've never come across it. Everyone I work with, they're brilliant. And then you listen to someone like Bassman, who's just so fun. You know, he'll just start spouting off like the funniest stuff. And you know, just I just love him. So yeah, I don't think there are any bad MCs in my book because I'm lucky enough to work just with the best always. And they bring so much to the table. They hype the crowd. They do what they do. And I think people follow MCs just as hard as DJs. And, you know, let's face it, most DJs, it looks pretty boring. You're just doing your thing. And unless you're a proper entertainer, the MC is the front man. Well, what know? do you make of Rewind? So I, I had a bit of a tete-a-tete -tete with Ray Keefe over this and, uh, and my not huge love of Rewinds. Don't mind one or two, but more than that, I'm, I'm not really up for it. What about you? It Isn't it incredibly annoying when, they, when these MCs keep... You, your job is to mix tunes together so that when they keep saying Rewind, 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 you're like... That's about the crowd, right? That for me, it depends on the crowd. If the crowd are asking for it, 
they get it. Am I a fan of rewinding every tune all the time? Not really, because it breaks my flow. It's not about me and showing my technical skills. It's more about like <laughs> making them happy. You know, it's it's what I call good vinyl sex etiquette. Well, you first. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, and finally, before we come to the end of this part one. You're blushing. Uh, of this, <laughs> Right. <laughs> Could you see it on the camera? Hopefully not. Uh, don't look at me. Uh, would you, finally, as we wrap up this uh, episode, there's been lots of talk of a Helter Skelter comeback. You, know, you previously played Helter Skelters. Well, do you think that it would be a success if it were to come back? Oh, I hope so. I hope everybody has success in whatever they're trying, you know. You hope, but do you think it would? There's a difference. Well, so, let me look. Let me find my crystal ball. Um, <laughs> I, d I don't know. I, I, why not? I think after this COVID lockdown, probably be a great time to launch it. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone's going to want to go to the yeah. opening of a paper towel. No, that's Look at true. me cleaning my kitchen. $10 yeah, yeah. a ticket. Yeah, I'll go out. Any, hey, you can use out. that in your get Patreon. I think it, I think any of those. I think I think it'll be a success as long as we're allowed to do what we want. And look, we, we, we're going to we can't keep this up forever. So, yeah. There you go. Uh, well, fingers crossed it does happen. That's the end of part one. Part two about uh, Raps production, uh, pop star history and poster woman past. Uh, and we'll also get her views on the current situation with COVID and all that. Um, plus a lot more in part two. See you soon. Well, that's it from another episode of Raw. We hope you've enjoyed listening to it as much as we enjoyed making it. We're now an all-video platform, so if you're listening on audio, please do check out our YouTube page for this episode filmed, plus loads more besides. And you can also find us on Facebook, Insta and Twitter. Just search for Raw, the 90s rave podcast. Plus, if you can spare just a few quid to help us continue making more great 90s rave content and hopefully keeping a smile on your face at a difficult time, you can do so at gofundme.com forward slash the 90s rave podcast all donations will be plowed back into the podcast including expenses to get around the country interviewing some of your rave favorites and also improving our equipment on that note thanks to all of our generous donors and those who've supported us lately especially to dominic s jay mallon tristram bentley will p malcolm payne noisy b ollie thumper russ bester margaret karen and DJ Jedi plus Jamie Section 23. Uh, and if you want to donate to help keep this project going and try to get yourself a shout out on a future podcast, that URL again is gofundme.com forward slash the 90s rave podcast. We'll see you next time. <laughs>